From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is First Person. This week, what it's like to be a climate scientist and an evangelical Christian. Soon after the elections, which would return Nancy Pelosi to the role of House Speaker, her office was inundated with protesters from the left. Their demand was a Green New Deal, which among other things calls for the United States to completely wean itself off fossil fuels in just a dozen years. The Democrats um, can, might, might say that there are climate champions, but they've got to step up and back a Green New Deal if they want to prove it. And I'm also here. On the other side of the debate, many Republicans have dug in as President Trump continues to question if climate change is the result of human activity while his administration systematically loosens environmental regulations. Today, President Trump made good on a campaign promise and nullified a series of Obama administration rules that limit greenhouse gases. His order would allow coal mining on federal lands, permit the oil industry to release more methane, and would allow more carbon pollution from power plants that burn coal. Methane and carbon are the... These days, the political divide in the United States on climate change is so wide that it's hard to imagine anyone bridging it. That is until you meet Catherine Hayhoe. She's both an evangelical Christian and a climate scientist. She has made it part of her life's work to find common ground between these communities. So thank you so much for joining us. I actually want to start by asking you about faith. And I know that you're an evangelical Christian, and I just actually was thinking maybe you could explain what that means. So I once asked the head of the National Association of Evangelicals, a pastor called Leith Anderson, how he would define an evangelical. And he said, very simply, an evangelical is someone who takes the Bible seriously. People have also defined evangelicals as people who spread the good news. That's what the word actually means. But today, especially in the United States, there is a very different definition for the word evangelical. And in fact, I think it's better explained by putting another word before it, which is political. Political evangelicals are the type of evangelicals that you hear talked about as a voting block. You know, the evangelicals support this candidate. They are people whose statement of faith, frankly, is written primarily by their political ideology, number one, and only second by the Bible. And if the two come into conflict, as they often do on topics from poverty and immigration to climate change, they will go with their politics over what the Bible says. And so in that sense, I am not an evangelical, but I absolutely am a theological evangelical, which is someone who takes the Bible seriously, who believes that we're told in Genesis that God gave us humans responsibility over every living thing on this earth, which of course includes our brothers and sisters as well. And then all through the Bible, it talks about God's joy and pleasure in creation in nature. And then in the New Testament, it talks a lot about our attitudes towards and our responsibility for those who are less fortunate than us. Those who are already poor, who already go hungry, who are already suffering, the very people who are most affected by the impacts of a changing climate. And I want us to get there, this question of the sort of moral core of addressing the work you do in your day-to-day scientific life, in your science, and, and in your faith. You're an atmospheric scientist. How did you go into the field? I am. Well, I grew up with a dad who was a science teacher. So from a very young age, I was taught that science is the most fascinating, coolest thing that anybody could possibly do. And why would anybody want to study anything else other than science? 
he was also, though, a teacher in our local church. And so I grew up with the idea, which I didn't realize was so uncommon at the time, that science and faith are really two sides of the same coin. That faith is a belief in what we do not see, the existence of God, and science is looking at the natural world around us that tells us how this universe actually functions. So when it came time to go to university, I felt like, well, isn't it incredible that we can use the tiny brains that we have on this rather insignificant planet to actually figure out how the universe began and how stars and galaxies evolved. So naturally, I went into astrophysics. (laughs) <laughs> and I was I was planning a career in astrophysics for the rest of my life because it is absolutely fascinating when Just before I was finishing my undergraduate degree, I had to take one extra course. And I looked around. I saw this course in climate science over in the geography department. I thought to myself, oh, that's probably pretty interesting and probably not too hard. Um, And so I went and I took it. And it completely shocked me because, first of all, I had no idea that climate modeling was the very same physics that I've been learning in astrophysics. It's just a special case of planetary atmospheres. But the second thing I didn't realize is that climate change is, as the military now calls it, a threat multiplier. We don't care about a changing climate because it's raising the average temperature of the planet by one or two degrees. We care about it because that incredible increase in the heat content of the climate system is driving huge impacts on the natural environment and especially on us. It takes those threats we face like hunger and poverty and disease and lack of access to clean water and even political instability and resource crises, and it exacerbates them. It makes them worse. And so I thought to myself, Well, I serendipitously have all the skills you need to study this incredibly urgent problem and surely we'll fix it soon because it's so serious. I'm going to study climate change until we fix it and then I'll go back to astrophysics. But that was more than 25 years ago. So you don't see a tension between faith in God and a grounding in science and that the moral core of having a relationship with the divine actually intersects well with your faith in science. Rather than seeing them as being two opposing forces, I see them as completely compatible because just think about it this way. If we believe in a God who created this universe, then what is science other than trying to figure out how God set it up in the first place? Where the challenges come in is when we are too narrow in our interpretation of what the Bible says, sometimes even in our interpretation of what the science says. But I grew up with the unique perspective that we can recognize that not only are they compatible, but they have to be compatible if we really believe what we say we believe. Why would studying God's creation tell us something different than what God actually is if we believe that he created it? But yours is not, in the United States at least, a typical response. And It's pretty well known at this point that the number one predictor for how people feel about climate change is where they fall in the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. And currently, evangelicals, in the United States at least, tend to be conservative politically. When you tell fellow evangelicals here in the U.S. what you do for a living, what kind of response do you get? (laughs) Well, it definitely depends on the context, but I usually get quite a bit of surprise. In fact, I remember the first time I had a conversation with people at my husband's new church, which was... um, over a decade ago here in Texas when he first moved to this church, they asked me what I did. And I said, well, you know, I innocently said, oh, I study climate change, you know, global warming. And they said, oh, we're so glad that there's people like you studying this because you wouldn't believe the terrible things that they're teaching our children in school. So by that time, I had figured out that there were a lot of people in Texas who didn't think climate change was real. So I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, you know, this is awful. They're probably telling them, you know, horrible things like it's not real. So I said, oh, yes. Well, what are they telling them? They said, well, they're telling them 
them that uh, the sea ice is melting in the Arctic and that the polar bears are endangered. Can you believe they're spreading these lies? And I, I looked at them and I said, well... I'm afraid that's actually true. And I have not seen those people again since then. Oh, God. But why do you think conservatives are so inclined to doubt the science behind climate change? Well, I have a conversation just about every single day with somebody who professes to doubt the science. And added up over the years, I've had thousands of these conversations. And there is one common denominator that shows up in just about every single conversation I have. And that is if you let the person continue more than two or three sentences, the conversation will take an abrupt turn from the sciencey sounding objections they were throwing up, like, you know, it's just a natural cycle or you scientists are just making this up, or even the religiously sounding objections like, you know, God is in control. So how could we humans affect something as big as our Earth? The conversation will naturally, on their initiative, take an abrupt right turn from those religiously and sciencey sounding objections into solution aversion. Hmm. I don't want the government setting my thermostat or telling me what type of car I can or can't drive. I don't want those liberals destroying the economy and letting China get ahead. I don't want a price on carbon because that's going to, you know, hurt me or destroy the economy or even threaten the welfare of the industry that I'm in. In just about every single conversation I've had, it is absolutely crystal clear that the real objections people have to the science and the impacts and even the theology of a changing climate has nothing to do with the science or the impacts or the theology. It has everything to do with the fact that they view the solutions to climate change as being a far greater threat to their identity, their ideology, and their well-being than the impacts. But if we say, oh, sure, it's a real problem, but I don't care about it. I agree future generations will be affected and people in developing countries and plants and animals, but I don't really think it affects me, so I don't want to fix it. Well, that makes us the bad guy. And we don't want to be the bad guy. We want to be the good guy. So we throw up these sciencey and religiously sounding objections because it makes us sound, you know, smart or pious or, you know, skeptical that we may, you know, we're not falling for all that stuff that they're trying to push down our throats. So that's why talking solutions is so important and not engaging with the smoke screen is also important because when we engage with those smoke screens exclusively, if, as if that's the real problem, they need more science. It's like Don Quixote tilting at windmills. We're never getting to the actual root of the problem. How do you deal with the naysayers, though? And you got a lot of hate mail and now we're in the era of Twitter. It, hate is strong. It is. And I get that hate every single day. Every day. I get it. Um, I, I find hope in recognizing that even though those voices are very loud, they're only about 10% of the population. The Six Americas of Global Warming is this really fantastic survey that they've been doing a couple of times each year for years now. It's out of the Yale Program for Climate Communication. And if people Google Six Americas of Global Warming, it'll pop right up. It's really interesting. And what they do is they, they separate people out into six different groups. So there's people who are alarmed. And then there's people who are concerned. Then those who are cautious. And alarmed, concerned, and cautious are the vast majority of people. Then after that, you have disengaged and then doubtful and then dismissive. And dismissive are the voices we hear on social media. Um, my personal definition of people who are dismissive, I think that word really says it all, is that they will dismiss every and any piece of evidence or information that you present to them. Because for them, rejecting the reality of a changing climate and the need for solutions is such a core part of their identity 
that it would literally be like asking them to, you know, cut off their arm or lobotomize part of their brain. That's how damaging and harmful they perceive it would be to their personal identity, who they are, to change their mind about climate. So with dismissive people, which again are many of the loudest voices on Twitter and Facebook and in the comment section, with dismissive people, I only respond if there's other people watching who want to know the answer to the objection they're raising. But if they're not willing to listen to what I have to say, and uniformly they're not, like on Twitter, I always give people links and I say, I'm sorry, that's not true. Here's a link you can used to update your understanding, they won't even click on the link. They cannot physically bring themselves to click on a link. So further engagement with them is really profitless. It's not going to change their mind, but they're only 10% of the population. And for everybody else, engagement really can change our minds. You actually had to engage at home first, didn't you? I, I read that your husband was not a believer in climate change when you first met. Yes. And well, actually, I would say I'm not a believer, so to speak, either, because <laughs> I look at the data and I crunch the numbers. I don't just accept it on faith. But to a certain extent, we do have to believe what other people tell us. We're, we're not experts in this area. And my husband is a really smart person. I met him while he was doing his Ph.D. in applied linguistics. Um, after we were married, he was immediately offered a position as an endowed chair at the University of Notre Dame, which is pretty prestigious when you're 27 years old. Uh, so I knew he was smart. I knew he understood data and and analysis and statistics. But growing up in, in the conservative community, his dad was a conservative lawyer and politician. He grew up going to conservative churches and schools. He had never met anyone who shared his values and shared his faith who did think that climate change was real. And me, the naive Canadian, I had never met anybody who thought it wasn't. So we were actually married before we figured out we were on opposite sides of the fence on this issue. But because, uh, because we loved each other, but frankly, even more importantly, because we respected each other, we were able to have constructive conversations where we listened to what the other person had to say. And I feel like I actually learned more from him than he learned from me because I had never had intimate experience or contact or communication with somebody who felt and thought this way. And so I learned what the real objections were. We were able to talk through everything together. And the result has been incredibly positive. He, for Christmas this year, he gave me solar panels. He actually did all the <laughs> research. He negotiated the contract. He found everything. He got it all set up. And then he couldn't contain himself, so he told me about it a few days before Christmas. And I was so happy. I cried. <laughs> and then he said, if it really works out well in our house, that he's going to get him on the church as well. I mean, you know, it just doesn't get any better than that. Wow. I'm curious what that first conversation was like. I mean, sit me down at the table with you. What was that first conversation like where he said, Talk to me about what your work is. Well, the first conversation was probably characterized by surprise <laughs> that, that we were on opposite sides here. But then once we kind of got over that surprise, we were curious. I was very curious. Why would this incredibly intelligent, smart, well-informed person think that? And then his perspective was pretty much the same, too. So we asked each other a lot of questions. We really wanted to walk a few miles in each other's shoes and figure out why it was that we thought that. And so that's actually the approach that I take now in almost every conversation I have, whether I'm speaking to water managers or corn producers or city planners. I try to get to know them, figure out what makes them tick, what's really important to them. Why are they even asking me to have a conversation? And then we start our conversation from that place where we share the most, where we have the most in common, where I understand what really matters to them and walk together from that place where we, where we connect 
to further things, you know, how climate is already changing, how that's affecting them, what we expect in the future, things where we might not initially have been in such close agreement with, but because we're able to connect on the shared values at the beginning, we can have very positive and constructive conversations with people who you never would have imagined you could have. Do you feel that it's changed given that Texas itself, where you live, has been so affected by extreme weather? Do you feel like people are noticing differences from not just their childhoods, but even the last two decades? Yes. In fact, surveys have shown that now over 70 percent of people in Texas would agree that climate is changing. They might not be so quick to agree that humans are responsible. Most people I talk to would still say, oh, it's probably just a natural cycle. But they're concerned enough about it. They're starting to call on me to come in and speak to their organization. So 10 years ago, I had never gotten a call to come speak to a a farming organization. They're very conservative and they weren't willing to talk to one of those liberal scientists who think that it's all humans when everybody knows it's just a natural cycle. Um, I, I had not talked to the oil and gas industry. I had not talked to a lot of our more conservative cities. You know, Austin's always out on the forefront taking action on issues like this, but the other cities were kind of dragging their feet, not so interested. Whereas now here in Texas, I'm having conversations with cities all across the state with farming and producing organizations, with uh, water managers, with um, even private landholders who call up and say, hey, uh, we're really concerned about the future of our family ranch. What should we be thinking of? We've seen some drought and some heat and some crazy rain that we have not seen since we've owned this ranch for generations. What should we be doing here? So people are very curious and they're starting to look for answers. And so that conversation has absolutely changed in the last 10 years. What does a faith-based response to climate change look like? I'm glad you asked that because a faith-based response looks very different, I think, than what we might imagine or picture. Too often we picture our faith as basically a vehicle for guilt. And I think we've all kind of experienced, you know, the green guilt. Should I really be, you know, driving this car or drinking that fizzy water or taking this trip or eating that burger? We're often overwhelmed with green guilt. And when you have, you know, the extra whipped cream of of moral responsibility on top, it can be absolutely overwhelming. I was at a meeting of faith leaders once a couple of years ago, and I will never forget one of them, a Catholic, said to the group, he said, well, you know, every time you turn on a car, you're sinning. And I thought to myself, I just want to get in a Hummer and drive circles around you. Because how do you propose I will take my child to the doctor when they're sick without a car? I live in Lubbock, Texas. There is no public transit from my house to the hospital. How do I get to work? How do I go see my family in Canada on horseback? It it made me so indignant and so frustrated that it really actually helped me understand how people feel that when we talk about climate solutions, we're telling them that they can't live the life that they live. They can't do what they have to do to support their family. And so that led me to one of the greatest realizations I feel like I've had in recent years, the realization that it's important to tell people that I'm profoundly grateful for fossil fuels. Fossil fuels have brought us to where we are today. And so the future is not being disloyal or ungrateful for the past. It's recognizing that that is part of the progress of the human race. I mean, speaking of progress, you actually appeared on a foreign policy podcast back in 2015, and the landscape politically, internationally looked really different. Pope Francis had just put out an encyclical about climate change. Uh, Barack Obama was in office. Paris, the climate agreement was yet to come. And the dawn of a sort of hopeful moment seemed near. And now it's 2018. We have a different president. Uh, We have 
walked away from Paris. And we've just had two major climate reports come out with very dire predictions. So I am a lead author on the U.S. National Climate Assessment, which reviews the state of the science and then also looks specifically at how climate change is impacting every part of the United States. And the main conclusion of the National Climate Assessment, if I could summarize it in in one sentence or two, is that climate change is no longer a distant issue that only matters to future generations or to people or animals who live far away. It is already affecting us right here in the places where we live. And we are already starting to respond. We are already starting to adapt, to build resilience to a changing climate, even if we don't recognize that or call it that. We are already starting the transition to clean energy that we need to accelerate in order to uh, reduce and eventually eliminate our impact on a changing climate. But the report concluded we're not doing it fast enough to avoid the most serious consequences yet. Do you feel the authors of these reports, and yourself included, were hoping that they would be instigators for change? We certainly hope that. We know as scientists, it's begun to dawn on us over the past 10 years or so, that the knowledge deficit model is dead. The idea that, well, you just need to give them more information because if people don't get it, we just need to write another report. Maybe this time we should have colored graphics or how about animated graphics? What if we have some videos accompanying it? And so we we get more and more elaborate in the way that we communicate information while completely failing to recognize that the real problem people have is they don't think that the impacts matter to them. And they also think that the solutions do pose an imminent threat to their ideology, identity, and well-being. So I'm really happy with the National Climate Assessment because it took this very much to heart. And the second volume, the one that talks about every single region of the U.S. and every single sector, and people can find it online at nca2018.globalchange.gov, that second volume really tackles that first myth, the myth that it doesn't matter to me. It has incredibly specific examples and details and photos of how the increase in sunny day flooding has occurred in these specific towns in New England as sea level rises, how these tribal nations in Louisiana and Alaska are having to abandon their ancestral homes because of erosion and sea level rise, how Iowa is experiencing you know, incredible 500-year flood events much more frequently than 500 years, and so is Houston, how specific um, events like Hurricane Harvey were amplified by a changing climate. On average, almost 40% more rain fell during Hurricane Harvey than if the same storm had occurred 100 years ago. In California and the western U.S., we're seeing double the area burned on average now per year than would be burned naturally. These specific examples really bring it home and show how the idea that climate change doesn't matter to me really is a myth. You've observed a major shift in American psychology towards addressing climate change. What's the most effective approach to facing that political opposition? Well, for many whose whose power and whose wealth depends primarily on continuing our dependence on fossil fuels as long as possible, each new, more urgent, and frankly, doom-filled apocalyptic report that we push out as scientists just fuels the opposition. It just causes them to push back even harder. Because in many ways, the need to transition to a clean energy economy in order to fix climate change, it's a symptom. People are really afraid. People are scared of change. And people's opposition to, you know, those newfangled wind turbines that are spoiling my view 
Or, you know, we've always used coal. My grandparents used coal. Why can't we still use coal now? So a lot of this emotional response to the type of changes we're talking about are coming about from fear of change. The world is changing very quickly. And many of the people who feel like they really, you know, they enjoyed their position. They felt like they had, you know, the authority, the position, the power that, that they needed. They, they're starting to feel unseated. Like, you know, what are all these women doing in Congress now? And all these immigrants coming in, they don't look the same as we do. And now people are talking about shutting down the coal plant. I mean, we've had that coal plant here since God gave us coal in Pennsylvania, you know, and, or oil in Pennsylvania back in the 1800s. So a lot of it is really boils down to a very visceral, intense fear of rapid change and an associated fear of loss, that things that we value, things that are good, um, things that matter to us, that form part of our identity, who we are, that those things could be lost in the process. So that helps me understand a little bit and sympathize. But at the same time, I know as a scientist, we're going to lose a heck of a lot more if we try to hold back the tide instead of moving into the new clean energy era. The U.S. feels uniquely resistant to face the climate change problem. The The opposition is stronger, it's more vocal, and it's had more political impact. Why do you think that is? Hmm. Well, that's a very interesting question. I've asked myself that, too. And my sister is a linguist, and so she enjoys reading a lot more social science than I do. I tend to focus more on the social science of communication when I read. And she, she said something to me a number of years ago that was absolutely fascinating. She said, if you look at kind of the national identity of countries around the world, some countries are very hierarchical, some are very communal, some are very independent. And if you look at which countries are most independent in the entire world, the United States is number one and Australia is actually number two. And part of that is a function, actually, of the geography of the country. I mean, to survive in the Western U.S., you had to be really tough. You had to be really independent. You had to be extremely self-reliant. And those were values that you passed down to your children and your grandchildren because that is what made you successful. But then, interestingly, those very values that, that made you succeed in inhospitable terrain decades and centuries ago are the very values that tend to make you very resistant to the idea of, you know, the government telling me what to do or, you know, the fact that my self-reliance is somehow contributing to this global problem. There's something about independence, I think, that makes us resist the idea of communal action because climate change is a tragedy of the commons, which means by definition, we cannot fix it unless we act together. I thought that that was very telling that in Australia, they have a very strong climate denial um, organization and it's very strong in their political system as well. And I, I can't think that that's a total coincidence. So is it fair to say that climate denialism is more popular in the United States compared to other countries? And I guess Australia, which I hadn't realized. Oh, yes, it absolutely is. So I actually kind of tally the number of people who come against me on social media, and I have a pretty sizable sample of a number of thousands of people. And while the majority of them do come from the United States, there is a substantial contribution of people from Australia and, unfortunately, increasingly from Canada as well. Because as you know, in Canada, they're putting a price on carbon. And so that's really brought out a lot of people from the woodwork who are vehemently opposed to putting a price on something which, frankly, has actually brought enormous wealth and success to certain parts of the country. Um, so understandably, they'd be opposed. they say, you know, we've had the oil and gas industry here in Alberta for a long time. It's brought tremendous economic prosperity to the entire country. How can you say that this is actually creating a negative impact on the world? And why should we be the ones to, to bear the financial burden of fixing other people's problems? So um, there's, yeah, mostly U.S., large contribution from Canada, um, Australia, a little bit from the U.K., 
and then hardly anything from anywhere else. A handful of people from Europe, and that's pretty much about it. What are you thinking about going into 2019? What are you hopeful about? I am hopeful that we are going to see solutions accelerating. Um, Here in Lubbock, which is one of the most conservative cities in the entire United States, I was just speaking to a colleague who works for a local power company. He said this month alone, there's 10 new petitions to put in solar roofs here in Lubbock, which, you know, Lubbock isn't that big a city. And that's a pretty big deal for us here. Um, I love hearing the stories of all the incredible things that are happening to advance access to solar power in sub-Saharan Africa or the really innovative strategies that people are putting in place to build floating villages in the Netherlands so you can let the water go where it will instead of trying to hold it back. And looking especially at the expansion of innovation to take fossil fuels and replace them with sources of clean energy. So it isn't a case of going back to the Stone Ages, you know, unplugging every gadget we own, stopping traveling, you know, never eating anything except for some leaves that we grew in our own garden. That's not a a vision of a life that many people want, although, you know, there are some people who would like that life. I, I think presenting people with that vision of what a better future could look like where we are all, not just the most fortunate of us, but we are all better off, not worse than we are today. That's really my hope for 2019. Catherine Hayo, you're our global thinker and the foreign policy global thinkers issue, which comes out January 22nd, 2019. Um, Thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Thank you for having me. That's Catherine Hayo, the director of the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University. She's also the founder of Atmos Research and Consulting, which helps bridge the gap between scientists and stakeholders. Dr. Hayo is also featured as one of foreign policy's global thinkers, To read more about her and other global thinkers, check out our winter edition of the magazine, which comes out January 22nd. Thanks for listening to First Person. Our podcast is produced by Dan Efron and edited by Rob Sachs. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I'm your host.